The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. My next guest burst onto the scene in 1976, 77. He has had since then a career of 40 years. Long time. It's a, it is. 19- Too long, some would say. <laughs> uh, to give him his proper and official title, Sir Lenny Henry. It is. <laughs> That's who I am. The reason Sir Lenny is with us is because he has two simultaneous books uh, emerging hand in hand. One, the book of legends, what if all uh, stories were real. This is his children's book and he has his second, do you tend to call it memoir, autobiography? Um, Yeah, memoir, Memoir. I think is a good way of describing it because they both happened in and around lockdown, really. The memoir was uh, a follow-up to the first one, which is called Who Am I Again?, and um, which was all about from birth to about 1617. And Rising to the Surface picks up the entrance, which is like being fired out of a cannon, smothered in grease, uh, into show business. And it's kind of like a big roller coaster. You know what it's like. You're trying to survive. You're trying to learn at the same time. And I thought it was like being chucked into a river with anvils attached to your ankles and having to scrabble your way to the side every time. Every day was like that for me uh, for the first five or six years. Well, we say for the first five or six years, when you read it, the sense that you get is new faces is the lighting of the blue touch paper. And from that point on, there are ups and downs and there are peaks and drops. Yeah. But there isn't a stop for a good 30, 40 years. No, I didn't still work for eight. I mean, the first, after new faces, which was seen by 16 million people, um, I didn't work... I didn't stop work for about 10, 12 years. I was worked non-stop. So the, the fact that all these people had seen me, I think I had to get round all of them for them to get an idea of what I was actually like. It's not bad. He's all right. I had a bit of that going on. But, but, but I bit- learned, I, I started to, what I did understand was you've got to ask people questions. And the big thing about being a young person in show business is all the old people are dying to give you advice. So I just had this thing of everybody wanted to say, well, now what you got to do is this, lad. You got to wear, you got to wear this kind of suit. You got to have your hair like this. Don't talk about politics. Do talk about politics. Tell these jokes. Don't tell those jokes. I had advice for years and years and years, and I soaked it all up like a sponge. Well, that's the interesting thing about the outset of it because there are there are some comedians. I mean, you take a Dave Chappelle as a case in point. By the time Dave Chappelle is nineteen, he is a seasoned comedian. He has been doing it for five or six years mm. at that this point. You get the sense that your fame landed you to a point where that. Seasoning had yet to come. Like you were yeah. still, you, you talk about buying up every book that you can get by, and every every record by, whether it's Richard Pryor or Steve Martin. It was almost you found yourself as a successful comedian and need to learn your way into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was kind of completely the tail wag, wagging the dog. I started off, um, I could make my friends laugh, which was easy. You just put some milk in your mouth and slapped your cheeks, and it all came out. Or you um, you said of you went like this. Bah! If there was a girl walking by, that was what made my friends laugh. Uh, and then I started to do impressions of people off the television. Frank Spencer, hello, Betty. Uh, Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. Scooby-Doo. So once you knew how to do those, it was fine. My friends would laugh. Then it became bigger, it became more public. So I would get up on stage at a discotheque and start telling jokes and doing characters and impressions there. And when you make 300 people laugh, that's very different to making three people laugh. And I thought, hang on, I'm onto something here. And my friend said, keep going, you can do this. And then by the time it got to the audition for New Faces, I had a kind of guy who wanted to be my manager. He was a DJ called Mike Hollis. And he just said, you've got this. And I went on stage in front of all these people at an audition, all pros as well, professionals, and I got a standing ovation. That was my, that was my, because, and I thought after that, I was going to be like this all the time. And it wasn't because although I knew how to do 
five or ten minutes for 20 or 30 people or 300 people in a discotheque, it was, that's very different to going somewhere where they've paid money to see you do an hour. I didn't have an hour. I barely had 10 minutes. And I would literally go on stage and just try and improv my way through. Well, that's an the hour. thing. You get the sense when you when you read the the early years of you gigging that a lot of it is just sheer force of personality and character and speed on your feet. That it's not. I'm here with a notebook full of jokes. Uh, but remember, we, when you talk about Dave Chappelle being a seasoned professional by the age of nineteen, in America, there's a very clear guideline to how to be a comedian. You do stand up at um, tryout nights, open mic nights. You might you, you get two minutes together, then three minutes, then four minutes. Then you got twenty minutes. Once you've got twenty minutes, you can go anywhere and work any club. Uh, whereas it's not like that in in Britain. Uh, it, it, you literally have to learn a whole trade. It's like you can't just go on knowing how to make a chair leg. You need to know how to make the whole chair, and then you're allowed to go on stage and entertain people for an hour. It's very tricky, and I, I res- my full respect. To anybody who goes out and does cabaret and does clubs because that's work, hard work. And I had to learn the hard way. Yeah, and you're interesting about some of the people that you became exposed to in those early years. You talk about Cannon and Ball as a case in point and seeing those guys where you talk about them doing little bits of apparent accidental improv where they they have a trip or they... And it's all planned and home. Everything, Cannon and Ball, everything from... um, Tommy used to do a thing where he grabbed Bobby's chest. You got me chest then, Tom. <laughs> and then it, Bobby would do a thing where the, the microphone would go between his legs. Oh, don't worry, I'm wearing a box. I'm wearing a box. All of those things were ad-libs. Uh, but they were beautifully rehearsed ad-libs that they've been doing for years. And, and the thing is, your act is your act. You've got 45 minutes of stuff that you always do, and you know it's going to go well. And you've also got nine hours of stuff that you've learnt along the way, that if anything goes wrong, you could just throw it in. And um, that's what I kind of learnt. It's not, you're not doing an hour. You're literally memorising three hours for the one hour. It was fascinating. And because I'm a student of comedy, by necessity, I kind of enjoyed the learning, but it was really hard. Audiences booing you, people getting up to go and buy a pie. (laughs) (laughs) People reading the newspaper while you were on stage. It was ludicrous, the things Wait, that happened to me. Which is worse, the booze or the departure for the pie? Which gets you? Which cuts you deeper? I think getting up and going because some pies have arrived is pretty... Nobody did that to Groucho Marx. Nobody did that to Jerry Lewis. They pretty much stayed in their seat to watch those guys. But to British comedians, the pies have come. <laughs> Everybody gets up and goes to buy a pie. Unbelievable. And of course, also, there was race racism as well to deal with. Um, I was a young 16-year-old black kid who was out and about, um, doing the clubs in places where there was never anybody that looked like me. There wouldn't be a black person within a 40-mile vicinity of any club that I did. So I was always having to go on stage and make the first joke about my appearance. Um, I'd always say something like, you know, um, Enoch Powell wants to send people like me back where they came from. He's going to give us a £1,000, which is great for me because it's only 10 pence on the bus from here to Dudley. (laughs) (laughs) Opening gag! I was like 17. That's not bad. It's a good gag. Uh, but it's unfortunate it, you have to do it. It's terrible that you have to do it. But the thing is, and I know that um, Frank Carson and Dave Allen and people like that would tell jokes against themselves. It's, it's so that the audience are comfortable with who you are and what you present when you're on stage. And it's awful that. But actually, I think it literally saved my life. I remember John Peel coming to see me and said, it, afterwards he said it was amazing. He said, before you came on, 
they were they were calling you names and saying when's he going to be on you know if he's not funny we'll hang him from a tree outside and by the time you got to the end of the show they were all on your side and standing up and giving you a round of applause you literally won the audience over from minute one to minute 60 and all I could think of was thank you for saying that John but I, I shouldn't have to do that you know I'm I'm an entertainer I'm not kind of I'm not a politician or anything. And it's funny the way that even, whatever about the, the overt and awful that you describe, it, it it was present even as a sort of subtle undertone and things. You you have in the book a copy of your first... Um, oh, in the in the programme. Correct. Yeah, so in the programme. This is for the Showtime 1980 at the North Pier in Blackpool. And this is, it's it's describing you and it says... Quotes, it's not everyday audiences are treated to coloured versions of Max <laughs> Bygraves, Tommy Cooper or Michael Crawford. Uh, he quips, the he being you. Yeah, and I, I didn't say that. But that's that's PR. And, and we've got to remember... This but it rings the, so oddly to a modern ear. It is weird. And you, somebody said the past is another country, right? History is another country. And when you when I was thinking about this, and, you know, a lot of tears and laughing a lot when I was writing this... But when you think back at the, some of the sad things, you do think, wow, that's a real... The racism and the sexism and the homophobia was very much of its time. It does look archaic now. Millennials look at us and go, what were you guys up to? And that's right. They're right to say that. Well, it's funny about because the, the only two... People is the wrong term. The only uh, two entities that, re, that looked like you genuinely disliked them in the entire book. One is Australians and two is Bernard Manning. The whole book, you're nice to everybody else, but reading between the lines, Manning you didn't mourn, no. and a lot of your treatment in Australia you haven't forgiven. Wherever Bernard is, I'm hoping that it's warm, really warm. <laughs> um, no, he wasn't a very nice person to us. And um, the, technically, I thought there were things that he did when he started off that were very clever, and he was obviously influenced by American comedians. But as he got more older and more conventionally and more, and more offensive... I just stopped liking anything he did. You, you know, he, he just was deliberately obtuse and awful as a comedian. He didn't want to make any friends when he was on stage. He didn't care what you thought about him. He was going to say what he wanted to say, and that was it. And I think that there's, there's a few people like that now. And you say if you did that now, you'd get cancelled, but it seems to me that people only get cancelled if they want to. You know, it's, 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 it, it seems to me that people are able to get away with things by being clever and by qualifying everything. And um, if you're clever enough to do that, you can get away with anything. But Bernard wasn't interested in qualifying anything, he said. He just said it. Did you watch the Darkest Hair documentary on him? Um, I think I did, yeah. It was very... It was... Whatever you think about the man, he drove home every night to see his mom. all of those things. There was something going on there. There was some hatred there that nobody ever got to the bottom of. And I feel sorry for him because the world can be a beautiful place and um, you just need to turn your face to the sun sometimes and feel it the, to be happy. The bit about, one of the things that's a theme in the book is you learning from comedy writers, from comedy producers, from other comedians, from your own experiences. Mm. The other thing that's a theme in the book and I, I don't mean this in any way negatively is look, you're very frank about certain things working out fortuitously at just the right time. You talk in the early stages about Trevor McDonald's growing career. Yeah. Being a huge Save advantage. my life! <laughs> We, there was nobody on television to impersonate if you're a black person. It was literally, I'd be doing an impersonation of myself. And then Trevor McDonald came along and I thought, oh my gosh, there's a black guy doing the news. And it was brilliant. Trevor McDonald on the news was amazing. They sent him everywhere. 
Nobody else wanted to go to South Africa. Trevor went. Trevor went to South Africa, met Mandela. He went to he went to Northern Ireland. He went to Northern Ireland. He reported from the Falls Road and everything. And it was brilliant. He went everywhere. And I just thought, I've got to do this guy. So I went and did him on Tiswas and became even more famous. I became Trevor McDonough. I was the guy impersonating Trevor McDonald. And then it was so good, he came on. He came on this mad... And if you try and explain Tiswas oh God. to young people now, we used to drag people up by their ears and go, hello, how are you? And if they wanted to go for a wee, we'd keep them on television live. And Sally James used to dress in thigh boots, a crop top and hot pants like a horny pirate. And... <laughs> John Gorman used to let off stink bombs and Clive Webb, the magician, used to let off smoke bombs. You know, I don't need to go and I'm a celebrity. I did it for five years for 33 weeks a year. It was an unbelievable television show. Millennials have no idea. Well, this goes to a thing that I think you don't get enough credit for, which is the amount of things that are now common that you were in on the ground floor. New faces being a case in point, the X Factor and Pop Idol and all of that seems new and fresh, whereas effectively you navigated the, um, that at the time. Yeah, new faces, Opportunity Knocks, they were all there back in the day. And all of these shows now are based on those shows, really. There's, there's a panel who judge you and you might win. That's it. That's what a talent show is. And I was on 74, 75 were the heydays of new faces. And in 75, I won and, and was seen by... 16 million people. And it was so amazing. I was in Leicester two weeks after I'd won New Faces. I'd never been to Leicester before. Um, and I think I was doing a working men's club there for some reason. And I went to Leicester. I was walking down the street. And a bus stopped in the middle of the street. And a black guy poked his head out the window, the driver. And he said, Lenny Henry, you're brilliant. Come on, sign this for my mum. And I went over, he had his head out the window. And there were all these passengers going, where am I going to get to work today? What's... <laughs> What's going on? It was amazing. So people, people knowing who you are is the is the the up and the down of this. You know, everybody knows who you are. So you know, and now is that an up? Do you like that? Um, my friend who used to work in a factory said, "Oh, it's like when you sweep up the iron filings. It's part of the job. You know, if you gotta you sweep up the iron filings, then you wash your hands to get rid of any bits that are lying around so you don't cut yourself. And to me, being known by people." when you're out and about. I mean, when I was married, we used to sit down sometimes in a restaurant and people would come and join us that we didn't know. They'd just go, ah, <laughs> I love you two on the telly. I was just saying to my wife over there and they'd sit with you for an hour and a half. And you couldn't say, I'm really sorry, but I'm out with my wife. You had to kind of sit there and listen to them and then sign something for them. And then they go, but now with phones, it's even worse because everybody's got a phone. Nobody knows how to work it. They ask you for a, a selfie then they spend five minutes trying to get in the weather and looking at old photographs and then looking at Twitter and then looking at, you know, what film's on tonight. Then they find the camera. Then it's pointing the wrong way. Then they ask somebody else to take the picture. It's kind of crazy. It always makes me laugh, though. What do they shout at you? Because given the compendium of... like, Do you get Delbert Wil Wilkins? Is it No, not Delbert anymore. The I can never pronounce him. Theophilus P. Wildebeest. <laughs> it's usually, Katanga, my friends! Or, okay. And they're all things from the past, which is fine by me. But what you don't want to hear is this. I went to get my PhD at um, Royal Holloway College. It was a very formal occasion. Um, I think one of the former heads of the BBC was there giving out the award. Now, I got a big round of applause when I went up. It was nice, lovely. And um, I got my scroll. And I was, as I was walking down, somebody in the back went, OK. <laughs> and I thought, 
I'm 63. Tis was was over 30 years ago. It's like you do something once. It's unbelievable. Well, this may not be the time to say it, but I mentioned about the things that you didn't get enough credit for. One of them, it has to be said, because you were ahead of the game by about 10 years, and I was a huge fan and deeply disappointed when um, the series ended, was Chef. I was talking about this yesterday. I loved Chef. Chef was brilliant. And this is also back in Jurassic Times, anybody under 20. Chef was um, in the 90s. I'd just done a terrible film in... um, Oh, we have to talk about that. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, (laughs) And while I was in Los Angeles mourning the fact that um, the only tears that um, I would cry in the day would be the ones falling onto the script. Um, I was reading newspapers from the UK talking about chefs, and chefs were sort of behaving in a very Keith Richard rock and roll kind of way. They were ordering people out of restaurants for ordering salt. They were kind of telling people off for putting their handbag on the back of a chair. They were kind of getting um, food critics up against the wall by the neck and saying, why did you write that about my food last week? They were basically behaving like spoiled rock stars. And I thought it was really funny. And I said, there, could, there should be a series in this. And when I came back from L.A., having made True Identity, I just thought, A, I want more control of my work. I kind of, so I formed a production company. And I thought, um, and I want to do a series about a chef. And that's where Chef came from. But the interesting thing about the choice of the series about the chef was A, it was fairly soaring in its ambitions in terms of how you filmed it, but B, the role that you gave yourself was the straighter of the cast. You weren't the ostensibly funny ha-ha guy. You had funny lines, but it was a much more acting role than what you'd been associated with. The the inspiration was, if you watch Frasier, often Frasier is the one he's very put upon, and then he gets wonderful bravura comedy moments, but he's always quite serious. And I wanted him to be like that because I can act the goat. I can be silly. I can fall off a chair on Late Late. But actually, um, I was really wanting to show people that I could act too. And it took a long time to, com- to convince the, the guy who was running comedy at the BBC, Jeffrey Perkins, to give me a chance to do this. He would go, why do you want to be this guy? Nobody's going to like him. It's going to be, you know, what you've got is people like you, but you're... It's like you'd be acting with one hand tied behind your back. And I said, but it's a proper acting role. I want to show people that I can do this. And I hope I did, you know, I mean... It, oh, yeah, but... but the, and it was... A, it now, in hindsight, looks like it is of the milieu of, you know, the Gordon Ramsay and the Hell's Kitchen yeah, and all the rest exactly of it. that's exactly what it was But about. it predated all of that. Yeah, it yeah. was the one that was sort of the we pioneer. We should do it again. But now you've got shows like Bear and you've got films like The Menu. That's it. And it, things. And um, Oiling Point. You know, people have realised that The Kitchen is actually a huge... Um, forum for drama and comedy and tragedy. So, you know, Chef was way ahead of its time. On the topic of tragedy, true identity. Briefly. (laughs) It was a film that Eddie Murphy turned down because Disney realised that having just had the success of 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop, they would have to pay him, they'd basically have to give him the moon wrapped in some wrapping paper with a ribbon if they wanted to employ him. Um, So he dropped out of that. He also... I think, had problems with the script. It was based on an old sketch that he did where he said, what would happen if a black guy went out into the white neighbourhood to find out how white folks behave when we ain't around? So he he put, like, prosthetics on and went out into the neighbourhood as a white guy and just had all his adventures. It was a sketch for Saturday Night Live, and it was pretty funny. And they, they wrote a script based on this. And clearly, there's a reason why... The two Ronnies didn't make Four Candles, the movie. (laughs) Because sketches are sketch ideas. You know, Kevin and Perry was just about okay as a movie. But, you know, this this is a kind of three-minute sketch idea. It's not a film idea. 
a film needs a beginning, a middle, and an end, and an inciting incident, something where there's a whiff of death, something where they have to learn something. This film didn't have that. And so there were a lot of writers brought on to try and make it a better script, and it, it was just impossible. And people like Richard Curtis read it on my behalf. And Richard said, Lenny, this is, this is amazing. I think they should recast. And Hugh Grant could play this role <laughs> as the black guy who becomes the white guy. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. And I, I, had, I got on the plane. I had a script. I arrived. They gave me another script. I got to my hotel. I was given a rewrite. I woke up in the morning. There was another rewrite. I got in the car. The drive me gave, driver gave me a rewrite. I got to the set. I was given another rewrite. That's how it went for the whole run of filming. So you kind of knew it was going to be terrible. And I came back, and actually, I'd been gone a year, and I thought everything would have changed, and everything would have... Nothing had changed. So I came back, formed a production company, started to plan Chef, and we did Chef, you know. The bit, though, that that, that section, first of all, it begins with um, when you arrive over, because one of the things you talk about a lot, and by the way, you look uh, in great shape, you talk a lot about um, your um, weight and, and struggles that you had with it. Um, when you get there, they hand you the Disney diet. Yeah, the Disney diet is on one side, everything that you can't eat, and on the other side, some air, a rice cookie, water, diet drinks, one glass of wine per week, um, and fish. And this is and because... on the other side was everything else. You couldn't <laughs> eat anything else. And it was the most miserable... I was really miserable. But um, but it's a setup to three shoot three movies. You have a three movie deal, and as you say at the start of it, this has the feel of cha ching. I'm like this yeah, could yeah. be Hollywood. This I sang could the, be I sang oh. the Hollywood. Hooray to Hollywood! I shall not tarry at the Hollywood. I'm gonna marry Halle Berry. I was like that. I was that guy. <laughs> I was so happy. Didn't read the script. Didn't care. Just let them get on with it. And uh, and uh, just had they made me into a white guy with prosthetics. I spent 20 days filming nonstop as a white guy. When I walked on the set as the black guy, I got arrested by security. Get on the floor. Put your hands behind your back. Oh, bloody Henry. That's a white guy. Shut up. You know, I, I mean, it was awful. So two thirds of the movie, I'm a white guy. Why did I make this film? Why did I agree? Because Saturday Night Live had a long legacy of having turned what are ostensibly sketches, Wayne's World, the Blues Brothers. But I wasn't on. Saturday Night Live. I've been on Tiz Wars and Three of a Kind. (laughs) But so, I mean, I learned a lot. David Katzenberg at the very end said, well, at least you know what to ask for next time. And I didn't know what he meant for ages. I just thought, what's that? And what he meant was, when you formulate a career, you need to think about it long and hard about what you're going to do. This is if you're going to write an adult book, a memoir, a kid's book, if you're going to be on telly. Think carefully about what it is you want, because this is going to be your legacy. When you die, this is what you leave behind. So before you embark, think about it carefully. Are you happy with your legacy? I love it. I, you know, Comic Relief has raised over a billion and a half pounds, and I've just been an Irish hobbit. What's not to like? <laughs> Two books that are out currently. One, Rising to the Surface, Lenny Henry's uh, second part of his memoir from the age of 16 through to now. And the second one is called The Book of Legends, and it's about twin kids going into a magical kingdom to go and rescue their mom. And having been in the, the Power of the Rings and seen all the fuss about people of colour being in the Lord of the Rings, I just wanted to do a quest book into a magical kingdom where there's wizards and stuff, where you might find a black person. How great would that be? And so I wrote it. 
The Book of Legends. What if all the stories were real by Lenny Henry? And if you want to meet Lenny in person, he is going to be signing books in a little over a couple of hours, 12 o'clock at uh, Dubray Books on Grafton Street. So uh, grab a copy and grab a pen and go meet him. Sir Lenny Henry, thank you very much. How lovely to talk to you, Anton Savage. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.